Welcome to the Culinary School Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Schroeder. Culinary School is a podcast about the food service industry where we go behind the scenes and interview food service professionals to teach, inspire, and challenge one another to continue to push the boundaries of our food service industry. Each week, we bring your guests to share their story and insights with you. Join me as class is now in session. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Culinary School Podcast. I am stoked for this week's episode. This week, our guest is Chef Bill Bracken. He is the founder and culinary director of Bracken's Kitchen. Bracken's Kitchen was founded with the sole intent of using food to make a difference in the lives of those they serve. It is their belief that by offering a high quality meal and tasty meal to someone in need that they would give them the opportunity to reserve their money for other important life necessities. Now, if you're a regular listener of the show, I typically go into a brief summary and share some things about my guest's journey and what they're doing today. But this episode will be a little different. I'm not gonna give you that. But what I will give you leading into this week's episode are some stats. There are nearly 400,000 people who struggle with hunger in Orange County and one in five children are at risk of hunger each month. 28,000 children are homeless in Orange County. 177,650 children go hungry every day in Orange County. A child is born into poverty in Orange County every two hours. And one in six Orange County children live in poverty. 48% of OC children receive free and reduced lunch at school. I want to give you one last stat here. In the United States, up to 40% of all edible food goes to waste, costing more than $165 billion a year. Yes, that's one year. While one in eight Americans struggle with food insecurity. Those numbers are staggering. So, listen to this week's podcast to hear how Chef Bill and the Bracken's Kitchen team is addressing the issue. This is episode 18 of the Culinary School Podcast with Chef Bill Bracken. We have Chef Bill Bracken, founder and culinary director of Bracken's Kitchen. Chef, thank you for being here today. Thank you so much, Jonathan. It's an honor to talk with you. Uh, let's just start off. Can you just give a Wikipedia, Wikipedia page summary of yourself? Wikipedia page. Wow, that uh, some of those Wikipedia pages are long. But uh, uh, I, uh, you know, uh, you know, as far as chef goes, I grew up in a small Midwestern town, and uh, uh, this food was uh, part of my life from the beginning. Started cooking in a restaurant um, uh, for a living when I was 12 years old. Uh, I guess child labor laws were different back then. Uh, and it was, a, it was a whole lot more fun to be inside of a kitchen and uh, get to eat well and, and lots of beverages instead of working out at the cornfields of Kansas as a kid. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, after high school, I went to vocational school um, uh, in, in, in Kansas, won a scholarship to the Culinary Institute of America through a, a national program and never even heard of the Culinary Institute of America uh, mm-hmm. before. But, uh, you know, my dad kind of uh, both I agreed, well, if I'm going to try to make a career as a chef. Uh, maybe it's time to give up the job of a 450 an hour banquet chef in St. Joe, Missouri, and go off to culinary school. So um, off to CIA I went, and I got out of the Culinary Institute of America and landed with Four Seasons Hotels and um, 
you know, I ended up spending most of my adult life working in five star and five diamond luxury hotels, four seasons, spending some Beverly Hills, et cetera. Um, I was blessed, uh, truly blessed uh, to have 12 wonderful years in Beverly Hills, and that's really where I, uh, you know, kind of created uh, uh, myself. Well, I was created, if you will, or uh, how I developed my style, where I developed my style as a chef, and, and all the things that are near and dear to me today when it comes to food and cooking. Um, you know, fast forward to 2011, I left the hotel world, worked on some consulting projects, and uh, helped open a restaurant, uh, kind of went back to my roots, um, making a, a barbecue uh, roasted chicken and pizza in a, a dive bar in Newport Beach, really called Dive Bar. So kind of ironic that after all those years in luxury hotels, I ended up in a restaurant making the kind of food I grew up on, so to speak. And, uh, and during that time is when I was developing the idea and the and the idea and the plans around Brackett's Kitchen, which is what I've been spending the last seven years working on, give or take. Yeah, great. And so, look, backing up to growing up, you know, having that love of food, was it, you know, something, was it eating it? Was it, were you cooking at home when you first starting off and kind of developing that, that love for food? I mean, is, you know, was there a specific point that you could kind of pinpoint where, you know, like this is something I actually love doing and something I could see myself doing? Uh, absolutely. I mean, you know, the irony of it all, I, I mean, I grew up in farm country in Kansas, but I was a city boy growing up, growing up because I grew up in town and all my friends lived on farms. So, you know, I've been a farm boy ever since I left, left uh, just the mentality of the way people think. But uh, even though I didn't grow up on a farm, my parents always, uh, my dad worked in a meat packing plant for 35 years. You know, he had, um, you know, every possible knife and, um, uh, a tool needed to cut up meat. He'd bring meat home with him. He'd butcher it. He'd grind it. He'd, he'd hooked up his own makeshift grinder to a, a Briggs and Stratton motor, and he's grinding his own beef. And you know, my family, uh, uh, my my cousins go to the local grocery store. Uh, all sorts of just food things around us. And growing up in farm country, food was just a part of life. Um, I, I started cooking at home and enjoyed it. Um, you know, we had a garden. We always canned. My mom canned all of our own stuff. We had a wheat cellar in the winter where the potatoes and apples went. So food was just a part of uh, of, of our life. And, you know, unlike uh, some places today, especially in the city, you, you eat because you're hungry. But food was just, you know, whether you're at the Friday night fish fry at the DFW or the annual fall festival or weddings, funerals, celebrations, food was just central to all of it. But in spite of all that, I never, uh, you know, I graduated high school in 81, and the only two chefs I really knew was, um, you know, heard about James Beard, and um, I'm having a, a moment there with our, our famous female chef, Julia, Julia, Julia Child. Um, but, you know, other than that, the only chef I knew was John Ritter's character on Three's Company, The Galloping Gourmet, <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, which you may not even remember that TV show, but uh, the point of that is no one dreamed of growing up and walking to Kansas of being a chef. It just wasn't part of a plan so i i was my senior year in high school and uh i had had every class i needed to graduate high school i knew i wasn't going to college um so i was a counselor's aide i was a library aide as a cafeteria attendant whatever i needed to be in class uh and i was sitting in spring of my graduation year sitting with the counselor's aide and uh, mrs miller asked me what are you going to do after high school and it's like somebody hit me over the head with a brick i was like i had no idea. It's like an awakening. It's like, holy smokes, I'm graduating in a few months. I haven't got a clue what I'm going to do. Uh, and she's the one who recommended I go on to vocational school. And 
even through two years of that, it was until I won the scholarship to the CIA, I had no idea what was what went on in the big world outside of Washington, Kansas. The internet wasn't a thing yet. I mean, this this idea of you know, Wolfgang Puck was you know young and new in LA at that time, but you know, I mean, chefs just weren't the rock stars they are today. So the idea of becoming a chef just wasn't even a, a, a blip on my radar until I went off to eventually the culinary school. And and what was that transition like for you growing up in a small town in Kansas going to CIA? Um, it was hard. <laughs> I mean, there was a transition going even to vocational vocational school for two years, which was in a town thirty miles away. But it was a it was a big city to me compared to where I, I grew up. And I was always a homeboy. I was mama's boy. I I didn't like traveling, going out. I just you know it was just that weird shy part of me and. Um, you know, going off to vocational school, you know, suddenly um, I grew up in a small, uh, you know, mostly 99% Anglo-Saxon, white American, middle-class America, however you want to describe that. Um, you know, I didn't have a lot of uh, very few immigrants around or people of other races or ethnicities or anything. Um, um, and suddenly I go off to vocational school in a bigger city and there's, you know, Hispanic population, there's people of color, there's different nationalities and like, oh, that that alone was a challenge to me, but I drove home every night back to my own home, so that was easier. But then when I went off to the CIA, I got dropped at a motel in Hyde Park, New York on a Friday, and um, my mom and dad left, and I had four days until um, school started on Tuesday, and I spent four days locked in a, a hotel, a motel room, just scared to death. <laughs> I was 21 <laughs> years old at the time, and I mean, I look at my daughter, she's 21, and she's She's been to Nepal. She's been to uh, to uh, Mexico. She's been to Panama. She's been to Ireland. She's done mission work all over the world. I'm 21, and I was scared to death in a motel room in upstate New York because uh, <laughs> all I'd known is my small town. And I say all the time, if I could have got on a plane, a train, a bus, if I would have saw a bicycle, I might have hopped on it and right, rode home. It was so overwhelming for me. And mm-hmm. then I then I uh, ended up in culinary school and. I'm in uh, sharing the dorm room with one guy who looked like he wanted to be Prince, imitated Prince in every uh, every imaginable way, and another guy that looked like he just got off a um, chain gang, <laughs> you know, uh, and just you know, super nice people. But for me, coming from this this shelter, not really shelter, but this is small town world, it was a it was a hard hard transition, and I I mean I had a tough time, but I had no choice because. There was no way to leave. Couldn't go home. I didn't have a credit card, didn't have money, didn't have a car. So I was stuck there. So I had to make it work, you know? Sure. Yeah. And and so when starting off there, in the beginning, were, were you ever doubting yourself or questioning if this is the right path for you? I mean, such a change just, you know, across the country for you and, you know, just I, a little bit out of your element. Is, I mean, did that cross your mind or, you know, wanting to leave? Absolutely. I mean, you know, the first, I don't know what the, the structure is like at the CIA now, but then the first several uh, blocks, if you will, it was three-week cycle blocks where you're in the class for three weeks to move on to the next one. And the first three or four of them, so for about three months, was all classroom. It was everything from nutrition to uh, food safety to uh, culinary French. You had to learn back then French terms to purchasing um procurement, all sorts of things, and I was just miserable. I, I'm not a, I'm not a student of, of uh, I'm just not a good student. Sitting in the classroom wasn't good for me, so that was really, really hard. Uh, and there was a lot of, you know, I didn't, you know, it was, 
some collect calls until my dad gave me grief and uh, yelled at me to stop calling the house collect and wasting money because <laughs> it cost, you know, I don't think a collect call does that even exist today. I don't know. But, uh, you know, I mean, again, this was a time when cell phones, credit cards, all those things I didn't have. So the collect call crying to mom and dad, I want to come home. But um, when I finally got into the kitchen and started cooking and getting into something I loved, it was my element that it started to started to be okay, you know. It's just something that, you know, I you know, I believe that we're all born with certain talents, and God gave me a talent to cook. So slowly I'm in the kitchen. I'm in my own element. Got a knife in my hand, pots and pans. And that's when I finally started to come together, and I started calming down and enjoying it. Sure. And was, you know, looking back at, at some of the things that you mentioned in different positions and restaurants and hotels you've been at was, I mean, how did – you know, fine dining, you know, was it something through CIA like that was kind of the the path for you or how'd you end up on the, the fine dining, luxury hotels, luxury restaurant path? Well, you know, I talk a lot about being a man of faith, but I recognize that not everybody shares my faith and I don't ever want to offend people. So uh, I don't know how a human being cannot believe that there's something out there, whether it's fate, destiny, Buddha, karma, uh, a higher power. Um, uh, I look at my life and the way things have happened, and I don't know how uh, I can't say something guided me because really it's uh, it's a semi-charmed life and career. You know, when I, I remember one of those early classes at CIA, uh, we had to write one, three, and five-year goals. And at that time, I just started to get uh, become aware because of the school and all of its resources and the library that was there. And I heard of this hotel and and excuse me, in um, New Orleans called the Windsor Court Hotel. And that was the first really nice hotel I ever was aware of. And I suddenly had the vision and dream of, that was my long-term goal, was to be the banquet chef at the Windsor Court, Court, Court Hotel. And, you know, when I left uh, West to go to culinary school, I was literally the $4.50 an hour banquet chef at the Ramada Inn. And all we did all day was make buffets with shaving dishes with fried chicken and prime rib and baked potatoes and spiced baked potatoes and all this Midwestern food. So that was all I knew. Uh, fine dining was foreign to me. And, you know, again, somewhere along the way, going through the CIA, and I remember ending up in the French restaurant as Coffier, and, uh, you know, the chef there was notorious um, for being uh, – you know, Gordon Ramsay, if you ever see Hell's Kitchen, I mean, there was a, yep. few, there was a few chefs like that. Um, and he was, uh, Uwe Hefner was his name, and he was tough. And there was a little bit more story behind that. And my girlfriend at the time, who used to bartend uh, in the restaurant, and uh, Chef Uwe had his eyes on my girlfriend, and he saw me, uh, you know, kissing her one day, and I was suddenly like, I was the enemy, so to speak. I don't know, I hope that's appropriate to share, but uh, Chef Hefner really took it out on me in that class. Um, my first night in that classroom, and that's right before you graduate, my first night in that classroom, uh, you know, everybody in the class said, Bill, you're working the saute station. You're the best guy we got in the kit, in the group. And I'm like, I didn't want to work saute or saute with this guy. I happened to get sick that night, uh, blood infection I had. I had a 102-degree fever, and I'm just getting killed on the line. And this chef is screaming at me in French and everything else, and I'm trying to make, you know, all this high-end cuisine. And it was it was hell, excuse my language, if I may say that. But, man, it was so much fun. It's a whole world of difference between throwing food in a buffet or something and making a beautiful plate. And that's when I really, uh, really realized there's so much more out there than just 
the world that I've known. Um, and, you know, obviously through Kony School and all the different classes and plating and stuff. But, you know, it's through the grace of God that I ended up working for four seasons and had an interview at the CIA. And I had no idea what I was getting into. And But, uh, you know, as fate would have it, you know, I ended up in the fine dining restaurant the four seasons in Dallas. At that time, the restaurant was Angelie. I was the top French restaurant in Dallas. And I worked with a chef that really just instilled this amazing uh, quality ethic and uh, eye for detail. And if the plate wasn't perfect, it was coming back at you and it wasn't handed to you nicely. <laughs> you know, so, uh, you know, you better be on the lookout. If you put something in the window that isn't perfect, it's going to come back off the line in, in fashion. So, and it's just, you know, the whole series of things like that that just really led me into this, this world of fine dining. And I always landed in hotels because, I've always had an issue with uh, the security, you know, financial security. And, uh, you know, hotels always in some way, shape or fashion offer that. It's a whole lot easier to run a successful uh, restaurant hotel financially than freestanding one. Because guess what? You don't have to pay rent most uh, most hotels. Nowadays, most chefs do because so many of the places are outsourced. But you're a Four Seasons Hotel and you got a fine dining restaurant. The P&L doesn't include rent for that restaurant, you know. So it may, it's real easy to make a profit on paper that way. Mhm. Yeah. Um so let's let's fast forward a little bit now. Um you know, before we get into the story of Bracken's Kitchen and how it started, what is Bracken's Kitchen for anyone who may not be familiar with it? Well, we're a nonprofit hunger relief organization here in Southern California. Um uh we are in our, coming up on our 7th anniversary. Um unlike uh, the typical food bank uh that hands out food or the um you know, or a soup kitchen or something. Um, when I started Bracken's Kitchen, I knew that I wanted to feed people uh, in the same manner which I've been feeding and cooking for people for years, and that's through cooking tasty, uh, healthy, and nutritious meals. Mm-hmm. And so why why did you decide to, to start Bracken's Kitchen? And, you know, before you answer, because just looking at through your journey and through some of the things that I've, you know, even seen online, you know, you – voted best chef you've received recognitions in different publications and you know so how how did that you know the luxury hotels and restaurants how did that transition into bracken's kitchen um i think about which way i want to go with this because i could talk all day about this transition and this truly life soul spiritual changing experience i've been through through the kitchen itself and the people we've met but you know, I mean, the long and short of it, I was working for a, a luxury hotel here in Southern California during the downturn in 2009, 10, 11. And, you know, the country went through this big recession, but Southern California was hit especially hard. And, you know, we worked for uh, an individual who very, very wealthy and through the downturn, um, he decided to lay, you know, cut cut staff, cut people, lay people off. The company did. And, um uh, the, the, the hotel and everything was doing well. It wasn't doing as well as others were during the downturn, but because our hotel was paid off, we didn't have a mortgage, we had a distinct advantage. But um, nonetheless, uh, you know, there was belt tightening like in everybody. And I watched a lot of really good people lose their jobs when there was no jobs out there. And I watched friends of mine that were, uh, uh, you know, suit and tie wearing individuals. When you look at them, you have no idea that they're struggling, uh, but they didn't have a job and they just struggled to put a meal on the table. Uh, two in particular that I worked with had wives and kids at home. Uh, the wives didn't work. Um, they had a mortgage. And uh, I literally, for me, the face of hunger 
uh, changed in front of my eyes. Up until then, I spent 25 years driving to Newport Beach or to Beverly Hills at work. <laughs> you know, and while you, when you drive by people on the side of the road that have a sign, hungry, will work for food, but you don't really see them up close and personal. Mm-hmm. And, and suddenly I'm looking at people that I know. I have one friend in particular who lost his job. He uh, was a, over, had over $100,000 in medical bills because his son almost died. Uh, and he got laid off. Um, I went to his apartment to visit one point in time, and he had nothing in the apartment. He sold everything he owned um, just to be able to keep the roof over his head, to not end up homeless. Um, there was not a couch. Was, I mean, everything they owned, they sold just to stay in the house. Because once you fall into homelessness, it is really, really hard to get out. And so that really moved me, and I knew then that I was being called to do something more meaningful. It took me a while to figure out what that would be. Um, but in the process, I lost my job too. In 2011, I, uh, uh, I I became unemployed, and unlike most of my friends, I benefited from uh, you know, maybe being a little bit more conservative with my money, a little bit better, um, what do you call that, severance package, but I was okay. And uh, that was when I realized I need to find a way to feed people. It took me a, a while to figure it out what it would look like, um, uh, but eventually we got there, and here we are today. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and one of the things that that I love that what you're doing, and you just mentioned it a little bit earlier, is, you know, it, it's not food like traditional soup kitchens or meals that, that are typically served. You know, you're cooking nutritious, hot meals. And you, you mentioned it, you know, food that you, you did like cooking, but, I mean, just I don't know if there's anything else there, but I love the fact that that's what you're doing and, you know, trying to make nutritious meals for, you know, for people who need need food. So I don't know, was that, was that always kind of in the plan or, you know, I guess why that idea rather than going traditional, you know, I guess in quotes, soup kitchen route? Well, there's, I mean, there's, you know, I think the human the spirit, the human soul, our emotions are really, really deep. Um, people um, manage their emotions in very, very different ways. I always, I've always been very, um, I've always looked internally at myself to tr- really try to figure myself out. Um, and I look at this journey and, um, you know, if, you know, I go back to the way I, I, I grew up with what I mentioned earlier, growing up in small town America and the Friday night fish fries and the VFW and all these things. And then fast forward, I find myself in Beverly Hills. I wasn't quite the, a version of the Beverly Hillbillies, the old TV show, but a little bit like that, man. There's a small town boy in Kansas with an office overlooking Rodeo Drive, or uh, Wilshire and Santa Monica Boulevard just up the road from Rodeo Drive. And, you know, it was that time in my life that I realized there's absolutely nothing in this world more opinionated than food. It's my humble opinion. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, but nothing evokes more a passion and emotion in a person than food. Not art, literature, music. Um, nothing has the same impact. I mean, when you have a, uh, you know, A-list celebrity like Sylvester Stallone, you know, standing in front of you, um, screaming at you because his oatmeal was made with skim milk instead of whole milk. And I'm like, dude, it's just oatmeal. What's the big deal? And I never really understood that passion and emotion until I fast forward to Bracken's Kitchen. And, you know, we all share the two most basic human needs for survival, the need to breathe and the need to eat. The problem is air is free and food is not. And it's that simple fact that gives food so much power over a person. So whether you're a wealthy individual that just dropped a ton of money for a meal and you have an opinion about it, or whether you're someone who doesn't know where the next meal is going to come from, food is just 
it's at the source of everything. I mean, before we can, you know, give refuge to the poor, before we can heal the sick, before we can educate our young, we need to be able to feed them. Uh, and, you know, and that's just a fact of life, and that's what gives food such enormous power uh, and to be able to affect change. And, you know, I, I always wanted to just, again, cook the same way, but along the way I realized that there's no better way to intimately get to know a person than sitting down and breaking bread with them. I mean, uh, and when you live in a world, and I used to think this was just America, but I've realized whether you're reading, uh, you know, old books from hundreds of years ago or you're re- reading the Bible with pages that were, you know, uh, read thousands of years ago, poverty has always come with a stigma. It's just a fact of life. You know, people that are living in low income and in poverty situations are always looked at differently. Um, so when you try to help those people, there's a trust issue, there's a there's a mistrust issue. But when you sit down and bring a meal to them, uh, especially the meal like we cook, it really it, it tells somebody that they matter, that their life matters, that you care about them, quite frankly, that we love them. And that, you know, not only we, – we, we kind of – one of our many mottos are that feeding people isn't the same as nourishing them. And we don't uh, we don't strive just to nourish the body, but the soul and the spirit too. And uh, that just really says something to somebody. And you know, somebody coined the phrase early on that we're delivering hope one tasty meal at a time. Um, and that really is. I mean, if a family is struggling and, and, and has nothing to look forward to, just trying to stay afloat. Maybe they're homeless. Maybe they're living in a shelter. Maybe they're living in someone's garage. But they're truly struggling. If they if the one thing they have to look forward to is when our food truck shows up or when our meals show up, then that's something. It's giving them hope, you know what I mean? And that's mm-hmm. powerful. And you don't you don't get that in a box of uh, of dried pasta and canned sauce from a food bank. You get that from somebody making a tasty, nutritious meal from you. That's why I mean that's why the holidays, the Easter's, the Thanksgiving, the Christmas, the birthdays. I mean, we come together around the table because food is love. You know, it's just it's powerful. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and I apologize, you should have asked some of these things earlier and to maybe set the, the tone a little bit, but it's all good. When, when you look at California or someone who maybe doesn't live in California in Orange County, you know, they, they think of, you know, the Newport, the Laguna Beach, all the, you know, the money, big houses, TV shows. But, um, you know, what I love about you guys is you really – raise awareness of the other side of the spectrum. Um, can you sh- just share a little bit, you know, some of the 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 facts that you guys talk about, um, you know, the statistics of, yeah. of Orange County? Well, absolutely. I mean, you know, even for me to back up a little bit, when you talk about a journey, you know, Jonathan, I knew when I was setting out to feed uh, people that um, when I started Bracken's Kitchen, I called on my Newport Meat Company friends and LA Specialty friends and all these vendors that I've been buying products from for the last 25 years and said, hey, I need help. You know, they were donating product. And I always felt like I could cook the same way but not the same food items because, let's face it, we're not going to uh, cook shrimp for a, for a low-income or homeless person. This doesn't make sense to buy it or donate it. But, you know, with the, with the ultimate, the absolute um, explosion of attention uh, to food waste in America, we are cooking the same products. You know, I got lobster in my freezer. I got shrimp in my freezer. I got I got racks of veal in my freezer. And, you know, uh, the USDA reported a few years ago uh, that uh, America is wasting between 25 and 40% of food supply. I mean, 40% of our food supply is going into landfill, having never been consumed by humans. 
Uh, and that's just unacceptable when we look at the, the, the issues of hunger uh, and poverty in America. I mean, to think that 12% of our population, give or take, is, you know, living uh, with food insecurity and we're throwing away 40% of our food supply is crazy. So, you know, now, you know, companies like Newport Meat Company, and I mentioned LA especially, and, and all sorts of big companies are recognizing that, you know, hey, before they throw this away, they need to try to find a home for it. And things get thrown away simply, you know, if you're a high-end retail uh, meat company, if you're a grocery store, if you're a fish company, and if you're dealing with perishable, perishable products, in particular meats and proteins, it's sell or freeze by. And if you didn't sell this product, you throw it in the freezer. And if you're a high-end retailer, um, not retailer, but a wholesaler selling to luxury hotels, uh, you know, Thomas Keller doesn't want to buy your filet mignon that was frozen that you discount the price on for the French laundry. You know, let's face it. Um, so mm-hmm. suddenly, suddenly we get thousands of pounds of product coming to us that's previously um, uh, headed to the landfill. Two weeks ago, we got 12,500 pounds of roast beef in. Uh, we'd prefer raw beef that we can cook, but this is roast beef that was packaged and packed for Costco. Uh, beautifully sliced stuff in individual packages, and all the boxes had been damaged somehow. So inside the meat itself, all the individual meat packages were fine, but the, the cases were damaged. So Costco refused it. Um, at least this is how I understand. I'm not trying to say Costco did something wrong, but, you know, if you're buying something and it comes to your damage, you don't accept it. So Cargill, the manufacturer, said, hey, we're not going to throw this away. So we got 12,500 pounds of roast beef came in our freezer, you know, and we're using that for everything from Philadelphia cheese to Philadelphia steak sandwiches to teriyaki chicken bowls to uh, barbecue peas, to you name it. So, uh, so here we are trying to take food waste, which is a major issue, and have an impact on that, lower the carbon footprint, the amount of food that's going into landfills, that's rotting and producing methane gas, trying to feed people. And the reason we're trying to do that, Jonathan, some of those facts are right here in Orange County, 48% of our school-aged children are on the government subsidized free and reduced meal plan at school. That means one out of two kids doesn't have lunch at school without the government's help. And in, in, in the summertime right now, it's, it's exasperated because they don't have school. So what are these kids and these families doing there's one school down the road from us in Santa Ana. The entire school population is on the free and reduced meal plan. 2,500 people on campus uh, all qualify. And that number, 48% in Orange County, jumps to 59% in L.A. County. And there's areas of uh, San Diego County where it's up to 69%. Um, and this is all from uh, information you can get from the the annual report on the condition of children in Orange County that's produced by a, a, a conglomerate of government and private uh, groups. So you can Google this report and see this stuff. So, I mean, and that's just talking about children. So, you know, if half of our kids in Orange County need help, you know, the parents do too. I mean, that's an easy right. way to look at it. So, and again, we think of Orange County uh, in particular, we think of Disneyland, Newport Beach, the beaches, Surf City, all these wonderful things. But, you know, you can almost not quite, obviously, but you can almost just split Orange County on one side of the 405 and the other side of the 405, and, you know, you get up into areas of Anaheim and Garden Grove and Westminster and Santa Ana on the other side of the 405, and that's where the, that's where the problems are. And, and these, are the, these are the working poor, the people that uh, mow, your, mow the grasses and the lawns, that clean the pools, that uh, the busboys in the restaurants, the people that work at the gas station. These are the, you know, the blue collar, I guess, is the right term there. I mean, uh, these are the people that are that keep America, California, especially humming, um, and they're they're struggling to think about going out to a, to a restaurant and eating a meal, and the busboy that's taking care of you, he's dressed in a nice little uniform and a crisp white shirt and a 
tie because that's the uniform. But if you saw where that kid lived at night, you'd be shocked. The people that take in such good care of you in the restaurant are struggling to put a meal on their table at home. So it's really sad when you think about it like that. Yeah, I mean, and just hearing some of those statistics, that it, you know, something that I, I feel a lot of people don't know. And, you know, me coming from Chicago to California, some of the people I'm moving to California, you know, they think of all the, you know, the stuff we see on TV. And, you know, unfortunately, that's not some of the things that um, that you're addressing now. And there's definitely a, a need for that. So, you know, how, I guess, how are you getting some of this, you know, food? Um, and, and maybe talk about the early days, too. You know, were, did you have to go out and, you know, reach out to restaurants? Or how, how did that look like, I guess, when you first started? And, um, has that gotten easier to where you are almost seven years later? Uh, uh, definitely interesting indeed. Um, you know, I, I, I'll, I'll start with this, if you don't mind me, uh, saying so many people um, I find um, just don't understand what a nonprofit is. <laughs> you know, a nonprofit business is a business just like any for-profit business. Uh, but there's two things that, that make it qualify for a nonprofit. Number one, obviously, is there's no profit. Uh, nobody gets paid out bonuses at the end of the year. There's no shareholder payouts. There's no dividends. Uh, the money that comes in stays in. And number two, obviously, it's serving a greater good in our community. So, I mean, most people don't realize that most hospitals are nonprofit hospitals. Hogue Hospital in Newport Beach, one of the most well-respected hospitals, is a nonprofit. Um, I, I wouldn't have thought that considering how much I had to pay to have my, my son be brought into the world through emergency C-section. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, I mean, so we're a business that has all the same challenges and struggles and needs and expenses as a for-profit business. So we have to be, you know, we have to be strategic and wise about how we run our business. And, you know, I share that with you because, you know, so many businesses, um, you know, even to back up, if you're from Southern California, you know the In-N-Out story, the In-N-Out franchises. It's legendary. Everybody loves in and out uh, There's been tragedy in the family, but they've been around for 50 years. And all they do is burgers and fries and some milkshakes. That's all they do. Um, and they do it well, and they've been very successful at that. But very few companies, I think, out there can, can say that. Uh, look at Pizza 30 years ago. All they did was pizza. Now they got all these things, Wingstop, pizzas, all these different things, breadsticks, desserts. They have to, um, they have to compete to stay alive. And uh, I share this with you because so many businesses, you know, they, they, they have these blinders on and they don't react to business and they just try to stay focused on what their core thing is. And in and out is truly a unique story that they can do that. Um, there's others, but they're one of our local favorites here that I bring up for many reasons. But as a nonprofit, I set out with a plan. Uh, I had a food truck. Uh, you know, even before that, I had a business plan that I was going to open a restaurant called Lettuce Eat as in lettuce, L-E-T-T-U-C-E, mm -hmm. and it was going to be a salad and sandwich shop, and I was going to morph it into lettuce feed on certain nights of the week and open the doors for the less fortunate to have free meals. Um, and that was me really trying hard to hold on to this this luxury uh, uh, hospitality career, for-profit business, um, trying to, to stay in that world um, and be relevant. <laughs> um, and we realized that for many reasons that wasn't going to work, and we really land on the idea of, uh, one of the biggest problems in Southern California when it comes to that is transportation. Is how's the family in Anaheim or Garden Grove or Costa Mesa or somewhere uh, get to a restaurant that's in Irvine or Newport Beach to get a free meal? Even if they had a uh, 
a bus pass or car transportation, any money they saved by getting a free meal from us, they would have just spent on, um, you know, transportation. Um, and when I started out, I was, I was, um, uh, I was determined not to have to feed homeless people, the hardcore street homeless people, um, for very personal reasons. I was, I'm scared of them. Uh, some of it was faith issues. Some of it was, you know, beliefs, and they need to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. But you know, um, Martin Luther King once said, it's a, "It's a preposterous notion to expect a bootless person to pull himself up by his bootstraps." Um, but I was determined to focus on people living on the economic cliff who had to choose between food and other life necessities on a regular basis. And I had my blinders on. I was going to um, have a, a kitchen with five food trucks. We were going to balance our time between uh, catering with the food trucks and, and feeding the less fortunate. And uh, that's the way it was going to be. But this, this recovered food movement blew up. Um, uh, wasted food became a major topic. And um, I, uh, you know, had, I was surrounded by enough people that uh, guided me. I'm not the smartest guy in town, but I'm, I'm smart enough to know when to listen to smart people. <laughs> um, <laughs> You know, and, and here we are today. Uh, my original plan, not out the window, was certainly we got one food truck. We're about ready to buy our second. But what we uh, what we lack in food trucks, we lack, we, we have in a 9,000-square-foot kitchen that we're producing 1,200 meals every day as a minimum, um, and we're sending them out with bigger goals in the coming years. So, you know, you, you have to, as a business owner, you just have to be wise. You have to react to the market. You have to know what's going on. You have to know what the trends are, and you also have to balance that with, you know, um, if if you're if you're, you know, allow yourself to change and adjust at the whim of the, every latest trend, then you have no substance either. So it's a fine balance. But um, you know, through it all, we we believe in a simple thing, and that is to keep the main thing the main thing. So uh, while we look at uh, culinary training, while we do catering, while we do all sorts of other things, our main thing is feeding the less fortunate, and that's always going to be the center of everything we do, and it's going to guide us. If we have somebody who wants to do some big catering event, I may be yearning for my past life and do fancy food. I'm not going to do that if it's going to interfere with uh, the main purpose of feeding people. Sure. No, I mean, that's that's amazing. That's one of the things, too. You, you touched on a, on a couple of things, but I wanted to, you know, kind of fast forward to, to today. And, you know, what does Bracken's Kitchen look like today? One of the what are some of the different things that you're doing on a regular basis, some of the different programs that, you know, that you have going on right now? Absolutely. I think, uh, again, we've had to, uh, you know, California passed landmark legislation mandating the reduction of compostable and organic waste going into landfills. And as, landfills. as I describe it, what happened 25 years ago with recycling paper, plastic, and, and, and uh, glass is now people are looking at food waste and, I, I could be wrong, but I would like to think that that will that legislation will eventually sweep across the country because those are the type of things that start in California. Love us or hate us, you know, a lot of things, uh, socially responsive things, you know, start here and end up everywhere. So, you know, that's forced everybody to look at food waste and how do we uh, uh, prevent it because food doesn't become waste until you actually throw it away. So even the term itself um, – it's a big misnomer. I mean, there's a video circulating around by Link TV that talks about how we take food waste and feed people with it. Well, no, we don't. That makes it sound like we're taking it on the trash can. You know, uh, mm-hmm. again, uh, we we stop it from going in the trash can, and and then we use it before it ends up there. Because once it's in the trash can, there's nothing you can do with it. Um, but I share that with you because that that food waste and that food recovery that has blown up has caused us to really change how we look at things. But you know, we have. 
you know, from just a feeding standpoint, we have, I don't know, over 25 agencies right now uh, that to get food from us on a regular basis. And that's, you know, it's a far cry from the 200 from the, the food bank, but it's a heck of a lot more than one food truck that we started with a few years ago. Um, and, you know, we, we have food going out, hot food, uh, uh, meals hot, ready to be served. Uh, we got food being picked up that is cold. It's going to be reheated. We get we package things in individual um, packages and freeze them like a you know high-end TV dinner. We go out with a food truck and feed. So we have food going out in all sorts of uh, different uh, capacities uh, to, to feed people. Because we do so much work with recovered food, we also share a lot of our blessings. That 12,500 pounds of roast beef I mentioned is a whole lot more roast beef than we could use in a, in a timely fashion. So about 8,000 of it went to the to the food bank, and they shot an email out to their partners, and it was gone within 24 hours. Um, but because of our connections and the people that we've uh, built relationships with, we can do that. You know, we're working on this culinary training program that's been something we've talked about for ages. We have one student with us from Goodwill now who's uh, got a coach with him. He's got some barriers, and, you know, he dreams a wonderful young man that dreams of a, a, a career in hospitality, but he does have needs. And so if we can give him a foundation of, culinary training, we can teach them the importance of showing up to work on time, to be clean shaven, to, you know, have a nice attitude, all these things. And, you know, maybe he can get a job in a, and, and become semi-self-sufficient. I don't know that he'll ever be able to take care of himself, but at least he can contribute to society. Um, we didn't set out to work with special needs students, but, um, you know, they've come to us. We have a couple other that come to us from another program from uh, Integrated Resources Institute. We're working to get our own, you know, program in off the ground. We don't want to be a culinary school. Uh, we're not a classroom, but we got, you know, anywhere from uh, five to 12 volunteers in our kitchen every day working with our employees. And those could easily be students. So we're talking to Hope Builders, um, which does uh, workforce training, Innovation High School, and Anaheim has a unique program, high schooling. So we're, we're finding the right partnership to truly have a group of students in the kitchen all the time getting culinary training. And I mean, our, our industry is starving starving for good employees and and and, uh, and and cook. So if we can give a basic foundation for them, really good knife skills and the basics of cooking, and then whether they eventually can make it to a school of their own or whether they just get a job with a, a chef who will teach them. Uh, and, you know, it's a heck of a lot better than depending on the government to, for support the rest of your life. So, you know, that's the best way to, to lead someone out of poverty is giving, giving them education. So that's important to us. And then, you know, we have you know, some contract meal service where we provide meals for some of our uh, shelter partners that they're sheltering these homeless people and they have to feed them. So I'm a big believer in keeping nonprofit dollars in the nonprofit world. I mean, I don't think anybody gives and donates money to a nonprofit having those spend at Amazon or Costco if they don't have to. So, you know, if we can provide meals to some of our partners, uh, then that is fantastic. Um, and because they're feeding the same people that we feed. And, you know, we got catering that we offer, uh, what we call catering for cost. Um, so, you know, when we do catering, when people have catering needs, you know, again, they could, uh, uh, you know, work with us and, and support a good cost at the same time. Uh, and the final piece is we just continue with our food truck feeding program. We're working on our second truck, uh, Betsy's, uh, Betsy's sister, her brother, we don't know yet. <laughs> uh, <laughs> We have a van uh, that goes out, so uh, you know we can just can continue to grow in all all avenues, if you will. So with 9,000 square feet kitchen, we got a lot of room for growth. We have some tenants renting space for us that helps pay the bills because you know, sustainable income is important to us. And 50% of our income now comes from sustainable sources, 
so we don't constantly have to beg people for money. We're earning our own money. Uh, so that's really that's really neat. And we're you know just we're we're now just trying to manage it all because it's all come so quickly. Sure. And and how often is is Betsy going out? And do you guys have you know do, delivering meals? We uh you know Betsy uh, is um, my son is nine years old and I decided that you know like dogs. Uh, you know, they say that one dog year is like seven people years. Uh, you know, so we decided that a truck is like three to one. You know, so every year a truck uh, uh, turns a year, it's three years for us. So Betsy's a 1998 Chevy truck. And if you do the math on that, 88 to 98, 2008 to 2018, 19, she's 31 years old uh, times three. is <laughs> She's 93 years old. So she's a grand old lady. Uh, and I, I joke about that because we, we recognize it's a really old vehicle. We don't want to overtax the truck. So, so much more of our food is going out through other sources. But Betsy is our uh, is our mascot. She's you know um, she's always going to be a part of us. And maybe someday she'll be mounted out front um, as a symbol or something until we get a next truck or when we get a next truck. But right now she goes out at least once a week. Last week she was out three times. This week she's out twice. We have regular stops. Uh, you know, every Tuesday night we're out feeding, every other Wednesday we're out, and then we have all sorts of other events that we pick up. We did Miracles for Kids in their surf camp this year. We do it every year. They're a great organization that provides services to families uh, with kids with cancer and other life-threatening illnesses. So they, they put on these surf camps for these sick kids and their siblings to go out and, uh, you know, families that have nothing. If your kid has cancer and you have to depend on a nonprofit organization for help, you, you know it's not good. Um, so we love to come alongside them and help them. So we do lots of fun events like that there. We'll go out to the Civic Center in Santa Ana every now and then, feed at the courtyard, just various things like that. Great. And, and one thing I want to back up and touch on real quick is uh, the culinary program or training program that, that you have. And that's, you know, it's something awesome to hear that, you know, now some of the people that you're serving and some of the kids, but now being able to provide that to them, if that's something that, that you're interested in doing, like you mentioned, it's, uh, this industry is starving for good, hard workers, and, you know, now just giving them some of the tools to, you know, kind of pique their interest and see if that's something that, that they want to pursue. Absolutely. Um, you know, culinary training is just, it's so important to our growth for many reasons. Um, so trying to find the right program, you know, and, you know, so often as a nonprofit organization, you find yourself in the middle between um, funders who want resorts, donors who want to know where their money is going um, and know that they're giving to a good cause and, hey, this is what I got for my money. And then, you know, the reality of running a business, uh, like I said, we're not a culinary school. Uh, some of my best cooks, I mean, I, I worked in the kitchen since I was 12, so I know a little bit. <laughs> I don't know at all. Mm -hmm. But some of my best employees are those who learned on the job. And there's, um, I don't know, there's something just, I think, inside a person's heart and soul that you, you did it yourself, you learned. I mean, uh, you you found a way, you fought, you struggled, and look at you now. Uh, you know, those success stories, somebody that was dealt lemons and they made lemonade out of them. And I think that's what, you know, you know, our type of training does. It's not a classroom. It's not a school. We're not going to teach you how to make a hollandaise and a uh, bernays and a, a bolognese and every other kind of age you can think of. Um, but we're going to give you the really basic foundation. And then, again, with the right employees out there that, that want to 
that are willing to take a risk, if you will, on someone who doesn't have a pedigree, who didn't graduate from the CIA, who wasn't on Top Chef. You know, these are people that really want to work hard. We had two young ladies in our kitchen all summer, uh, the first part of the summer. They just graduated last week to uh, the United Way and the Garden Grove School District with Orange County uh, Education. Um, and they just did an amazing job. They, 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 these are students that are living in low-income uh, world and going to college is a long shot. The best they can hope for is community college. Uh, but yet, the, you know, these organizations are working with them, trying to give them introduction to what they dream of. And these are kids that, we, in spite of, you know, living in poverty, they still uh, they see TV, they watch TV, they like to cook, they see Top Chef, they see all these the Food Network, all these shows. Like, yeah, I want to do that. But somebody's got to give them a break. Somebody's got to give them a chance. You know, I was I was lucky to win a, voca- a scholarship to go to the CIA, and I. I tried so hard to get the girl who won second place uh, with her set of chef knives uh, to give me the chef knives, and she can take the scholarship to the CIA. It's it just, you know, through the luck of God that I actually made it to the premier culinary school in America. But this is opportunity most of these kids don't have. So if we can give them that opportunity and change our lives, um, you know, everybody's better because of it. Our industry gets qualified people that, um, that really want to work hard and learn and grow. And, you know, um, and these people get a chance at a life outside of the, 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 the sad one they've known up until now. Yeah. And so, you know, looking back to when you first had this idea to, to start Bracken's Kitchen, I mean, looking back, did you ever think you'd be where you are today? I mean, to the, the amount of staff that you have and, and volunteers who come in and, you know, donate their time to different organizations that you work with and, you know, just the number of lives that you've been able to make an impact on. I did in your wildest dreams. Is that something that, you know, you think that you'd be here today? It's almost like you were in my meeting earlier and I heard this question being asked to me. I met with uh, someone today who was kind of asking a similar question and it's, it's not a black and white answer. Most of them aren't with me just because the way my brain works. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I always, like I said, I had this vision of these food trucks and stuff, but you know, when I, when I left the, the hotel world, one, one thing I didn't touch on earlier is, I mean, the timing was perfect. My, my career has been so wonderful and blessed to me. But, um, you know, I worked in an environment, uh, you know, 60 and 70 hours a week for 25 years takes a toll on your body uh, emotionally, physically, spiritually. When you're working in, you know, ultra luxury, I even call it, uh, where the demands for perfection are so high, uh, it's really, really tough. And, you know, I worked with some really, really demanding bosses. You know, uh, I mentioned Hell's Kitchen earlier. I mean, that was the world I grew up in. I mean, I was called a stupid being American 10 times a day in my youth and straight on up. So, I mean, um, getting out of that corporate world, that mentality was such a blessing to me. Uh, You know, at one point in time, I was a one-man show with a food truck. And, uh, you know, I started this nonprofit, but I didn't didn't make a salary. I couldn't pay myself until the board of directors decided to actually hire me to run it. Very strange, (laughs) you know, thing I've learned along the way. So, I mean, I put, you know, two and a half years into this, not making a penny, uh, building it. And then one day, you know, it's like, okay, how do I start actually making some money doing this? Because it wasn't part of my plan even. It was something I was going to do on the side. I mean, originally when I started, I was consulting, and that was going to provide for my family. And this Bracken's Kitchen is my way of giving back. But at some point in time, if you really want to build a nonprofit, you got to – any business, you got to focus all your time on it. So I did that, you know, and eventually the board of directors, you know, offered me a job <laughs> – paying me about a quarter of what I've made in my past life. Um, 
And there was a point a couple of years ago, it's like I had to make the decision, am I just going to be a one or two man show and going to be this really small nonprofit or are we going to do something more with it? Did I envision where we are today? No. Did I envision more? Yeah. I mean, we, we had three employees last fall. We have 14 now. You know, we, we, wow. we, we, pre- we prepped about, uh, you know, 1,500 meals a week. Last year we're doing that mess in a day. Um, you know, we're dealing with employee issues and all the things you have to deal with, with, you know, in the corporate world and, you know, hiring and firing and workers' comp and all those things. And to be honest with you, that's not what I wanted. <laughs> I left that world behind. Uh, uh, but it goes along with it. And, you know, I mean, I, I say this all the time. Bracken's Kitchen has done so much more for me than anybody we've ever fed. Uh, it, you know, I mean, the, the relationships I've had and built because of this, the people that have come into my life where it's a poor family that we're feeding and just greet me with genuine love and gratitude all the time. No agendas, no anything. They're just kind-hearted human beings or whether it's the volunteers that walk in the kitchen. So it's been amazing. So uh, I, I certainly didn't envision all this, but I thank God every day that I'm here. Yeah. So coming up on your seventh anniversary, what, you know, what, what does future Brackens look like, you know, the next seven years? What are some of your goals moving forward? Well, I think that we just happen to be, you know, I don't take credit for any of this. I mean, I, you know, people oftentimes say, well, Bill, at least you, you were, you started this. I'm like, man, I was foolish enough to do it. That's all. I mean, there's a reason why hunger relief in America has been built around the warehouse model of the food bank. I mean, kitchens are expensive. Running a kitchen is hard. And producing meals like this is it's tough. It's a business that, you know, it's a hospitality business. It's not easy. It's a whole lot easier to put some dried packaged things in a box and send them out and let a family figure it out on their own. But, you know, um, it's where we are. And, um, you know, we love every minute of it. But we've recognized, and I share that with you because we recognize very few people are doing this. Um, and I don't say this arrogantly at all. L.A. Kitchen closed down last year. Unfortunately, this is Robert Eggers' place. Similar work to ours, but, you know, they closed their doors. You know, um, our friends at L.A. especially are producing, or I'm not producing, they are recovering enormous amounts of food down in San Diego uh, through the Chefs in Hunger program. People in San Diego, there's no one to take the food. So we get that food here and try to process it. There's just no one doing what we're doing. So we recognize with the, the attention to food waste, the legislation to mandate the reduction of it, and the work we're doing, we have something that's scalable. Uh, I believe there'll come a time in America where every food bank in America either has or will be associated with the recovered food kitchen because we just have to stop throwing food away. You know, I uh, my dad grew up, as I told you, I grew up with my dad working in a meat packing plant. I'm a meat potatoes guy. I am not vegan. I am not an environmentalist. I am not uh, one that fights for the rights of a chicken. Um, but I believe very strongly that if uh, if we take the life of an animal to feed people, then we have a moral obligation to make sure that we do just that, to slaughter an animal and then throw half it away. It's just not right. Uh, so if we can share what we're doing with other people, if we can grow our a program if we can scale it. I mean, all, we've got people reaching out to us from Colorado, Kentucky, and the, the East Coast, you know, as they're hearing about us. And, hey, if we can just become a consultant and help them, we'll be glad to do it because people are hungry, we're throwing food away, and there's a solution. So how can we help with that? Yeah, no, that, that's great. Um, so what are what are some of the different volunteer opportunities what are some of the things that you're looking for people if, if they are interested someone who's listening you know how they can get involved 
what are some of the different positions that that Brackens has open? Well, I like to remind people all the time, like I said earlier, we're running a business just like anybody else. So if you have a business or you imagine what it's like to run a business, we have those needs. Everything from IT help, website design, um, uh, ordering, purchasing, scheduling, cooking, serving, I mean, especially hospitality. So, I mean, quite frankly, we'll take volunteers in anything. Uh, you know, we don't, we can't, we're not able to hire our own mechanical mechanics. So when we have something that breaks down, we have to call somebody if I can't fix it myself. When we have an IT issue, I have to call an outside guy or geek squad unless I have a volunteer that can do it. So, I mean, the list is really endless. If you have a skill and you want to help out, I'm sure we have a need for it unless you're a nuclear a physicist. Well, we're not doing that. <laughs> but, um, you know, but beyond that, the, the most obvious ones are people come and volunteer in the kitchen. They volunteer out of the food truck to give away food. We have some drivers that volunteer and deliver food. I mean, that's the most obvious and, and the most popular is in the kitchen and out of the food truck. But, again, you know, admin help. I mean, you know, to, to pay one a, a volunteer. I mean, we wear we are, wear many hats in the nonprofit world. It's a common saying, um, like most businesses nowadays, because it's tough to, to make a profit. But, um, you know, you can very quickly have a, a bunch of paper stack up that need to be filed away. And if somebody wanted to volunteer for a couple hours doing admin work in the office, file these, fix this, do that, move that. So, I mean, it's it's there's always things that need to be done, cleaning, washing the trucks. It's just endless. So I hope that's helpful. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. And I'll make sure afterwards as well to put the, the website link in the show notes. So if anyone who is interested, they can go and take a look and, and, and reach out. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, so la last question before we move in, into some final rap, uh, some rapid fire questions. Um, if you could go back in time, what is one piece of advice that you'd give to your younger self? Say, go back to moving into to your your room at, at CIA, getting ready to start moving from Kansas to New York. You know, what what's one piece of advice that you would tell your younger self? Uh, I put two two together. Uh, one of them is a song that I love, and that is "Fear Is the Liar." Uh, fear lies to us all the time, so don't listen to fear. And number two is be patient. You know, uh, I have a saying thing that's been hanging in my offices for years. Uh, it was something that was written and found in Old St. Paul's Church in Boston in uh, 1642. And the things is there. It says that the world and the universe is unfolding just as it should, whether you believe it or not. Um, so sometimes you just got to be patient because when we force things, it usually doesn't work. So be patient. Don't be afraid. Great. Okay, let's move into some rapid-fire questions as we wrap up here. Uh, what are you most excited about for the food industry right now moving forward? Uh, oh, that's tough. But moving in, uh, considering where we live in Orange County, I just absolutely love the, the creativity of the small restaurants. All these chefs are creating these small, little eclectic uh, uh, restaurants. It's the food halls that are popping up. Um, you know, I used to enjoy, enjoy and love a three three-hour fine dining menu, but to be able to go to, to Taco Box and get a gourmet meal in 45 minutes or go into, uh, you know, uh, Anaheim Packing House and you got 25 different places to choose from, it's just so cool. Mm -hmm. If somebody came up to you today and said they wanted to open a restaurant, what is one piece of advice that you would give them? Don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> um, be really thoughtful and, and plan, uh, you know, 
make sure you have, I think the, even beyond that is make sure you have working capital. You know, people spend everything into opening a restaurant and they don't have the working capital to keep it running. And that's so important from a business standpoint. What's uh, what's one concept right now that you really like that others may not know about? Hmm. We got restaurants here in Southern California called Slapfish um, and Gourmet Seafood Shacks by Andrew Gruel that he's opening up slowly all over the country. And it just gives a whole new meaning to, um, you know, fish and chips and just seafood in general. And it's just amazing, fun little concept. So I do have to let you know that uh, in episode two, one of my very early guests was Paul Montenko from Stacked, and Stacked, he, yeah. and he and he, that's he said Bracken's Kitchen, uh, he was uh, was one concept that he liked. So I I have to share that with you. That's so. Do I, I need to go back and say, hey, I love Stacked, but you know that <laughs> would be that would be self-serving because I also uh, you know helped uh, him with his early menu, but uh, and consulting <laughs> so. Saying I like that would be kind of like patting myself on the back, but he does have an amazing concept. I love his food there too. Yeah, it's great. So when are you going to see a Bracken's Mac on the menu then, since you helped out with it? Uh, believe it or not, last year I helped him um, win the San Diego Mac and Cheese competition, and he did. Um, we won with, uh, um, I think we called it Southwestern Mac and Cheese with chorizo and goat cheese and melted leeks, and we won, and it was on his menus for. I don't know, six months with a portion of all the proceeds coming to us. So uh, we may uh, we may end up doing that again. I may uh, help uh, compete again and come up with something and uh, come up with a, something that's not only a crowd winner at the competition, but a crowd winner at Stack that stays on the menu forever. Yeah, then that'd be great. Um, all right, if you had to choose your last meal, what would it be? My mom's fried chicken with mashed potatoes and gravy. Perfect. All right, last one. Where can listeners go online to find out more about Bracken's Kitchen? Website, social, anything you have for us? Uh, we're everywhere there. Our website, obviously, brackenskitchen.org. Um, but, you know, to really see pictures and videos and really appreciate it, you know, find us on Facebook and Instagram, facebook.com slash Bracken's Kitchen. Same thing with Instagram, uh, where we really, we're really active on social media and you know, show everybody what we're doing, the people we're feeding, the food we're sending them, all sorts of things. Awesome. And and I'll include those links as well um, that I mentioned in, in the show so people can, can go and see that. Thank you. So, Jeff, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for sharing your journey, the story of Bracken, what you guys are doing um, in in California. It's uh, It's a great story and looking to see a lot more success and is what you'll continue to do moving forward. Jonathan, thank you. Um, and for the listeners, if, if this doesn't get edited out, uh, thank you for your persistence. I know I wasn't easy to get scheduled. Um, <laughs> I have listened to a few of your podcasts, um, if that's the right word for them. <laughs> I never know the right thing to call, uh, but uh, uh, I've listened to them and I actually listened to Paul. So uh, thank you for the work you do. appreciate being included. That's it for this week's episode. Thank you for listening, my friends. I hope you enjoyed it. If you like this episode, do me a favor. Please rate and subscribe to the podcast as well as leave us a review. And share the episode with your friends or on social. This will help the show grow, reach more people, and help us continue to build up the culinary school community. Let's keep it going. 
Don't forget to check out the website, culinaryschool.com. You can see the show notes for this week's episode along with the past episode show notes. I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for all of you. I truly appreciate all of your support and the love you guys have shown to the podcast. As always, thanks so much for listening. And until next time, I'm Jonathan Schroeder. This is Culinary School. Culinary School.